If you think back to when you were younger, you can probably think of a lot of different silly things that you believed that maybe shaped your childhood, maybe even shaped things into your adult life that you, you uh, were told when you were a kid that maybe were silly that just shaped who you were. I had uh, older brothers. I was the youngest of, of five and um, they, they, my older brothers would tell me lots of things that like as a kid, I was like, oh man, that's crazy. Like they told me that if you crossed your eyes for longer than seven seconds, it would get stuck. And so I, I'm not sure to this day that I've crossed my eyes for longer than seven seconds in fear of them being stuck and me seeing double for the rest of my life. We used to go up to Canada and go fishing and they told this legend of Lips the Carp. Lips was, was not the shark, but the carp. Like if you know anything about a carp, it's like a giant fish that just floats around and eats algae. But they said if you put your fingers in the water on the boat that Lips the Carp would suck your fingers off and pull you in the water. And I had vivid pictures of what Lips the Carp looked like and what he would do. And I'm still a little weird with fish, right? Like these like lies kind of like shaped my brain for the rest of my life, right? Today, we are kicking off a new series for the, the next seven weeks starting uh, today. And, and this week is, it's kind of an intro week. It's almost a table of contents for things that we're gonna be kind of going through and talking about uh, for the, the kind of rest of this series. But there, there's a couple different things that we, that we wanna do. The first thing as we jump into the series is we want to acknowledge, we want to acknowledge the realities of the spiritual realm. My wife asked me, what, so what's this next series on? What are you doing? And I kind of told her, you know, it's about uh, kind of these three ancient ideas of the world and the flesh and the devil and how it plays in our lives and the spiritual world and all this stuff. And she said, if you don't spear a demon, I'm not coming. Hopefully she shows up on Sunday. But, but we, as, as Westerners, we kind of have a specific uh, picture in mind when we talk about the spiritual realm, right? Like for some of you, you're like, I don't, seems a little hocus pocus to me, right? And for others of us, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I saw a demon in my bathroom last night. Like there's all kinds of different ways that we, that we come to this. But for many of us in our culture, we fall on almost that materialist side, right? We are kind of post-enlightenment. If we can't see it, if we can't touch it, then it's not real, right? Then we have a very practical way of seeing everything. And so when we talk about the spiritual realm, for many of us, it's like, maybe that's kind of real. I guess I believe in God, so maybe there's other pieces to it, but we don't really give it much credibility. And for others of us, it's like, everything is mystical. There, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you have not read, it's a fascinating little book of, of satire. Of um, it's, it's very interesting. I would encourage you to read it as we go through the series. But he says this, and I remember my clicker. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. It's interesting, this whole concept is like be obsessed with us or think that we don't real, aren't real, but kind of the, the spiritual aspects of things are real for the Christian. They're real for all of us. But we just oftentimes, because of our materialist view, we don't acknowledge these things. I heard one pastor say some of us are superstitious and some of us are substitious, right? We don't believe any of these things. Michael Scott in the office says, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. I love that. By acknowledging this reality, 
hope is that we might start to read scripture differently. We might see the world in which we live differently. I think that as we go through the series, as you open your Bible and you start to read through, especially the New Testament, and these things that we're going to talk about, it's going to start to pop. It's going to be a dimension that oftentimes we can read over or fly over without giving much thought to. We want to acknowledge the realities of the spiritual realm. But we also want to develop a framework for the forces that are opposed to our soul and to the kingdom of Jesus. We want to develop a framework for the things that are opposed to us. For many of us, we don't have a framework, right? Something to kind of build these ideas upon, a way that this works. We just have random pieces, right? Like maybe we have the different pop cultural references of, of who the devil is and what he looks like. And, you know, we think of if, if you've been on the planet for a minute, like the 80s had the satanic panic. For some of us, there's like certain scary movies where like, I like scary movies, but the demonic ones I'm not supposed to watch for some reason. They just make me feel a little extra weird, right? Or maybe you have that overly superstitious family member that's just like everything's a little spooky. And, and we have kind of all these different pieces, parts, some Bible verses, some sermons we heard, uh, some movies. And we just have pieces and not a framework of how, how these things are opposed to the soul of a believer. There's a pastor, I'm going to butcher his name if I try to say it, but he says, If we don't have categories for spiritual warfare, then we are probably losing the war in some area of our lives. I thought that was an interesting thing uh, to say. So we want to build a framework for these things as we go through the series. And the last thing is this. I hope as we go through this conversation together is that we would understand, that we'd acknowledge, develop, and understand that we are not in a utopia, but we are in a war zone. The world that we live in, that there is, there is the reality of spiritual conflict. And oftentimes we ignore these realities. We misunderstand. We blame it on other things. We maybe just ignore it altogether. But we become frustrated with the situations that we find ourselves in. We become frustrated with other people. We become frustrated with the situations that we're in. We become very frustrated with ourselves. And we don't have good understanding sometimes for the spiritual realities that affect all these things. And so our expectation, we set up, we come into life, and we expect everything to be great. But we feel opposition, we feel conflict, and we can't always put our finger on what those specific things are, and it changes our expectations. If we think that this world is the end-all, be-all, everything's going to go great, you're going to have your best experiences full of passion and purpose, and it's going to be flowers all the time, you and I both know that we're going to be disappointed. And sometimes it's just realities of life, but are there other spiritual realities that wage war against our hearts and our souls? In our failure to acknowledge the reality of spiritual enemies that oppose the kingdom and the believer, we will end up creating our own enemies. And whether they're political enemies, cultural enemies, maybe global enemies, maybe it's just my boss at work, that we will create enemies. So it begs the question, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? A church father, Thomas Aquinas, he said this, just as a man is tempted by the flesh, so he is tempted by the world and the devil. You heard this in the video, and for the sake of this series, we're going to keep circling back to this, this idea that's all through the New Testament, all through the New Testament. But we also hear these three things defined by different church fathers, that the enemies of our soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world the flesh, and the devil. Now, we're going to unpack this and create a framework for this as we continue uh, forward. But we see these three, specifically, all the, as, you begin, as we talk about this and you begin to read through the New Testament, 
that like these things will start to pop, but we see all these in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where Paul says, as for you, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed what? The ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's, that's the devil. The spirit who is now at work within those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We see the world, the flesh, and the devil all show up in this passage, but we see them all through the New Testament. So what we want to do today is kind of zoom out, create a table of contents, do a quick look at these three enemies, what they are after, and then in the following weeks, I encourage you to live, online, continue this conversation as we dive into each one of these enemies and how they operate and how they're opposed to our soul. The first enemy that we see is, is the devil, right? And you may be watching, you may be like, do we actually believe in devils, right? Like we believe in God, but we, do we believe in the devil? Do we believe in the spiritual opposition in this, this being of the devil? It feels a little Lord of the Rings, right? It feels a little stranger things. But the devil is, is this deceiving serpent figure we see in the garden in Genesis 3. He's one of many, many spiritual beings. We talk about angels, messengers of, of God, demons, we see Satan, all these, all these different spiritual beings. We don't have time to, to dive into all of the pieces of this, but there's a spiritual reality, spiritual beings. And all throughout the scriptures, he's called many different things, not least of the prince of this world, the God of this age, right? That he is the accuser, the deceiver, the liar, the slander, it's what, what his name means. Satan is not a name. It's not like Satan Johnson, nice to meet you, right? Like, this is not his name, but it's a title, the Satan. The adversary is what Satan means. That he's the one who is opposed to God and his people. And Dan is going to flesh this out next week. But for the sake of today, the most important piece of this, about we understand Satan and what, how he's opposed to our soul, is that Satan primarily operates in lies primarily operates in lies. I'd write that down somewhere. I would circle that. John 8, 48. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, right? Who are kind of, Jesus is kind of, he's in conflict with them all his time on earth. And he says this to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil. That's a harsh, that'll get you crucified. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He's talking about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, Genesis 3. Not holding to the what? To the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In this dense passage, like five times, Jesus says, Satan is a liar. He operates in lies. If you think about movies that you've seen, if it's just a straight battle like, Little person A versus big person B, like, oh, that's intimidating, right? But when you're like watching a movie or reading a story, or maybe this even happens in your life, and the, the antagonist, the bad person in the movie, when they seem to be on the, the same side as the protagonist, when they seem to be on the same side as the good guy, but you as the viewer start to see that they are sowing lies and they're deceiving and they're trying to distort and disrupt and get close to the truth, but just a little far away, that's a little more sinister. You watch those movies, you're like, how are they gonna figure this out? I don't like this. This whole thing's going upside down, right? It's different. It's primary way of working 
He's not playing Pink Floyd records backwards that say, Hey, Satan. But the primary way that Satan works is through lies. Lies about who we are. Lies about who God is and if he's trustworthy and if he's good. Lies about what is true. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Satan is going to lie about what is truth. Is there truth? Is there really any truth? I think this is true. And he's going to distort and lie. It's going to lie about where true life is found. It's going to lie about reality. Dallas Willard, an author, said this. I think this is, this is fascinating. He says, When Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick but with an idea. It was the idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. He lied. That Satan's primary MO is lies. And he lies that, that play to, not just generalize, but they play to something inside of us. They play to our sinful nature. Satan lies and plays to the second enemy of our soul, our flesh. Now, we don't, it's not like, oh, the devil's the one that makes us sin. But we, we as, as human beings, have sin within us. I have said this before, and I will say it again. When mankind sinned in the garden in Genesis 3, when mankind disobeyed God, thought that they could be God, were deceived by the evil one, didn't trust that God could be God, sin came to all people, Romans 5. Through the sin of one man, sin came to all people. You are not a sinner because you sin. It's not like, well, I sinned, so that makes me a sinner. The reason that you sinned is because you are by nature a sinner. Not everybody likes to hear that in 2022, but it's a foundational belief in the Christian faith. The sin, the sin nature that we have, the scriptures call the flesh. Right? Not just our bodies, not just the fact that we're human. Our, our, our bodies are created by God, will be redeemed on the last day, will be made new when Jesus comes to make all things new. But our sinful, tainted flesh here and now is referred to as the flesh. We were born sinful. I heard one author say, our flesh wants a minimum pain with maximum benefit. Galatians 5 says this. The, Paul kind of expounds on this, this dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. He says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict together. I love this. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Welcome to America. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. We're like, yeah, sure, those are easy. We can find those everywhere, right? But look what he goes on to say, because it's easy to think it's out there. But it's in here. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness. Then he kind of ends with a strong one. Orgies. All right, Paul. But these are the, the things that our flesh desires, kind of our, our cravings of the flesh, is what Paul says earlier. St. Augustine, another church father, uh, called these disordered desires. He talked about how sin is this disordering of our desires. There's a pastor named uh, John Mark Comer who talks about this, and I think it's fascinating, right? Like, we all have disordered desires. Like, we all, we all would love to work out. Like, January 1st, we are going to work out. We are going to be healthy, right? And then you give it like a couple weeks, and, and that thing that you desire, you're like, I'm not sure if I desire that as much as I desire a pound of gummy bears, Right? 
or for many of us, we're like, we want, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to get up, we're going to read our Bible. We're going to do, we're going to, whatever it is, pursue this relationship. Things that at a deep level are very important to us, but are kind of our natural cravings to, to lay down instead of go out, to watch Netflix instead of read, to just sit on our phones instead of pursue that person. Like those desires are great within us. What, what Pastor John Mark Comer says is that our deepest desire is not always what we most desire. The deep desires of our soul to follow God and to live an intimate relationship with people and to do what God calls us as we live in the kingdom, those may be our deepest true desires. But the desires that bubble to the top, what we most desire is usually selfish. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm grumpy. I want what I want. And I don't want you to bother me might be what we desire most, but it's not what we desire deepest. It's our flesh, right? What's interesting is that there was a study that just came out uh, recently, a couple different studies that were uh, honestly sobering. And one was done by an a organization called, I can't pronounce it very well, Legion, Ligonier, I don't know. It's a person's last name. But they do a study called the State of Theology where they, they kind of um, survey all kinds of people. And one of the questions they asked are, are humans born innocent? Are we born sinless, right? If, if, if the, the truth of we are naturally sinful because of the fall and we inherit that as human beings, this question, are humans born innocent? I thought this was fascinating for the state of where we're at. U.S. adults, this is just all U.S. adults, 71% agree that humans are born innocent. 21% disagree. Which is interesting, but it's interesting. You look at U.S. evangelicals, which I know that term to some of us doesn't mean a lot anymore. But evangelicals simply on paper, have a, have a high view of the scriptures, are focused on uh, the authority of the scriptures, salvation of Jesus, and uh, the, the ministry to other people, outreach and, and evangelism. And when they ask the questions, are humans born innocent? 65% agree. 32% disagreed. It's fascinating, right? If you have kids, I think those stats are pretty easy to see which way we go there, right? We're born, our flesh is opposed to our, to our souls. Our flesh is opposed to the way of God. It's an enemy of our soul. We'll talk about why this is important in a second, but it's easy for us to be like, the problem is out there. Part of the enemy is, is within here. It's, it's super important as we continue this conversation that Satan lies. He lies that plays to our disordered desires. One, one pastor says it's almost as, as if the, the piano of our soul is our sin. And Satan simply plays the piano. He plays the notes that are already there. And these things get normalized into a sinful culture. The world is the language of the New Testament. And now the world, to be, to be sure, is used in many different ways throughout the scriptures, right? That the world can be used as it's just humankind, right? For God so loved the world. He so loved the people of the earth, right? The world. Sometimes it's creation, like God created the world, right? Like we're not talking about those things. We're not talking about the collection of all people that God has made. Not talking about trees and plants and the planet that we live on. But when we see in the New Testament the way that many, Paul and many of the authors use the world, it's almost the spirit of the age. A pastor named Tom Julian said, it's not a specific set of practices, but more so an inversion of values. 
that Satan lies, he appeals to our flesh, appeals to our disordered desires, and these things get normalized into a set of values that is upside down from the things that God desires in the world. First John, Jesus, or the author John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, can the values of, of our society that are opposed to God, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as you look around, Walk to the mall, turn on the TV. Do you see this? The lust of the flesh just want what I want. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father. Those, those things don't come from the Lord, but the world. But the world and its desires pass away. That will finally happen one day, but do we not know that this be true? The things that are so important to us, the things that feel like the entire earth stands upon these things, they pass away, they change, right? What are the things that we would have died for four years ago that now we're like, I'm not sure that's the most important thing, passes away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. That the devil plays to our flesh. This gets normalized in sinful society. We, we probably see this. There's been a lot of cultural change. These last couple years, I heard someone say that the, the couple years of the pandemic were almost 10 years of cultural change. You know, everything political, everything with the pandemic, all that nonsense that you've heard too much about for the last four years. A lot of cultural change. It's easy to see some of these things in our culture specifically, right? Kind of this postmodern, that what is true, there's no real truth to an obsessive with the, the obsessing with the individual and our our desires and our needs and our wants for the individual, that everything is subjective. We see this play out, right? That in many ways we celebrate things that are upside down from what from what God says, from what God has ordained, right? And there's obvious things for sure, right? can look at sexual norms. We can look at just like what's acceptable on a TV ad, right? Language and what you see on TV, it changes. Entertainment, like we could see these things, right? And those things to be sure. We see Satan distorting what's true, what's good, what's beautiful. What we talked about last week, we see Satan distorting those things. But it's easy to look out and say, the world, the world, look at what they're putting on TV, look at what they're teaching the kids, look at all this stuff, the world. And I'm not saying those things aren't true, but it's easy to look out and ignore how we as followers of Jesus are influenced by the world because Satan, Satan wants to lie. He wants to lie to us and say, see problems out there, you guys are good, right? In the meantime, that we as followers of Jesus can, can succumb to the ways of the world and then we see the normalization of pride and of anger and of division and of slander, and of self-obsession, and of greed. And all of a sudden we see that we as followers of Jesus can be right in, right into the streams of the world, to the normalized culture. Don't believe the lie. There's different, there's different, different times, there's different ways that the world plays out, different times, different cultures. Don't believe that the world, that all these changes, that what Satan, how he started lying and deceiving and it playing out, started in like the 80s with rock and roll, and now look where we're at. As if we were good 40 years ago and everything was great. These lies have been sown since the garden and played out in a number of ways throughout human history. You see how this all plays together? You see how this picture plays together? That the devil sows lies that appeal to our flesh to get normalized in the culture of the world, which is under the influence of the devil who tells us lies. And you see how we get on this hamster wheel of these things and we think that we're free. And it's, it's a world, it's a reality that we don't even see. We just get tired of people. We just blame the devil for everything. You see how these things play out? 
there's a pastor, Mark Sayers, he talks about, if you remember this, this isn't being political, this was, this was a true story. I don't know, a couple years ago during some election cycle, that the way that, that uh, Russia kind of stirred some things in, inside of our world was, was played to the political hostility, right? There was this political hostility going on and they discovered that there was all these different Facebook groups that were created by these Russian bots that played to our hostility, that played to our, our disagreement about certain things and they kind of poured gas on the fire, right? And it led to this increase in polarization. If you, I don't know, Google it, that you see that there, there's these Russian bots playing these things to cause division, right? That there was this, this lie that was perpetuated that appealed to things that already existed within us that got normalized in an increase in polarization. This is the way that Satan works. We see this play out. That Satan sows seeds, tells lies of mistrust. In our flesh, we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect ourselves from anything else. And so we see this world of divisiveness, of isolation. If I can't be around people, I will come off by myself. And we see this normalized in our world. We're all sitting inside on Netflix, sad, right? That our flesh, our flesh wants this dopamine hit. We want to feel good. And there's a thousand ways that that can happen now. And so Satan lies to us, saying a little more won't hurt. Buy the extra thing on Amazon. Just watch, it's just a little bit of porn. Just, just, you just talk to that person that you know you have feelings for and you probably shouldn't talk to. It's fine. Just buy something else. Just eat a little extra. You deserve it. Have an extra drink. What's it going to hurt that there's this dopamine hit that we want? We have this desire in our flesh. And so Satan lies saying a little bit more won't hurt. And we end up with a culture of indulgence. From shopping to food to entertainment. That we are an indulgent culture, right? Devil tells us the lie that this, this world is all that there is. This is the utopia and we want this security and this happiness so we will fight others tooth and nail to get what we want and it gets normalized in our culture, right? The division and the anger. Think about this, that sometimes Satan, Satan tells us, we see this in the garden, that God can't be trusted. You don't have all the answers to everything. How, how can you believe a God if you can't explain this or you can't explain this, you can't explain this? And he plays to the flesh that wants absolutes that wants to be God, that wants to make sense of everything. And we get a culture, a culture of, of questioning and, and deconstruction and all these things. Unaware that there's many things that we don't have answers, many things that we don't have answers for. And ask yourselves, what are the lies that you believe? As I was preparing for today, I just started writing down on a sheet of paper the lies that I believe. It's not hard to come up with. Lies about, about, about people, about who God thinks I am, about who God is, about what's true, about what matters most, about what I should bend my life to. Start writing down those lies. And I think as you write those down, ask the, trace the lie. Trace the lie to what, where in my flesh is this appealing? To security or to wanting to be gratified or wanting to be prideful or wanting to be in control? Where is this appealing and how does this get normalized? Like, are, is the culture and the people around me, would they all agree with this and be like, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's how you should feel. What are the lies that we are believing? It's important that we identify all three of these enemies. Because what happens if we don't see this hamster wheel of enemies that are opposed to our soul that we see all through the New Testament, if we don't see, if we just see one, if we just see the devil, the problem's the devil, everything's the devil, the devil's the one out to get me, the devil made me sin, the devil's the one that's giving me a bad day, then we will become overly mystical about everything. And we'll have no accountability to our role, to our flesh's role in this whole deal. It was the devil. It's easy to blame the devil, right? Why did you say that to me? Well, it was the devil. 
Why were you late? Oh, the devil got the air out of my tires. It was the devil. If, we ju if the devil causes everything, then it's easy for us to not take accountability. But on the other side, if it's just the flesh, if it's just the material world, if it's just that we're humans trying to figure it out and we have desires and struggles, then we totally erase the spiritual idea and everything just becomes material. There's, there's no awareness of a spiritual reality. Right? If it's, if it's just the world, if it's just the world and that's our only enemy, it's just the secular world and the things they want to push on us, if that's the only problem, we become overly self-righteous as Christians, not being honest with our contribution to the problem. Our, our willingness to step into the culture of the world and say, I think this is great. I think this is fine. I know God says this, but you know, there's bigger problems that we have. That we, we won't take accountability for our role in this. And so we have to see that the lies play to our already sinful desires, get normalized in the world, and it goes on. Pastor John Tyson says, if you have a Satanless gospel, you will turn others into Satan. If you don't have demons in your theology, you will demonize people. And I think that can play out in a lot of different ways. What are these enemies after? What are they after? What is the thing that they want? That's our second question, and we'll, we'll end with this. John 10.10. 10. John 10.10 10 says this, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he wants. To destroy your faith, to destroy the good things that God has, to destroy God's way of the kingdom playing out in this world. He wants to destroy it, wants to lie, wants to deceive, wants to play to our flesh, normalize this stuff and seek to steal, kill, and destroy. But look at what this passage says. But Jesus has come that we may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has come to bring true life. The enemies of my soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they wage war against the true life that Jesus offered. And some of us are skeptical. Does Jesus actually offer life, or does he just offer a way of things, of the way we could do things? He just offers his opinion about how things should go. But if he is the author of life, his way is the true way to be human. And these enemies wage war against our souls. We see this begin in the garden. That God creates us to be his image bearers, to walk in the garden with him, to walk in the reality of his presence and his goodness and partner with him in doing the work of, of God in the world, of partnering with him to make flourishing in the world, of cultivating life in this world. He made us in his image to be like him, to shape the earth with him. But Satan deceived us, wanted to rule and influence, shape the world for himself. And so we see at the fall, sin entering this picture. Sin reigned in our lives, in our bodies, and we had guilt and shame and mistrust and death. And we see this play out from Adam and Eve on this pattern of deception and lying and death. And deception and lying and death mixed with a little guilt and shame. And you follow the story. Death reigns. Death reigns. It's the pattern of this world. But in the garden, there was a promise of a battle that would happen. That Satan's head, that the snake would be crushed, would be defeated. 2,000 years ago, on the cross, the battle was won. It's so crucial that we know that, that the battle has been, like, we're not going out stabbing demons in the eyeball, spearing demons, right? The battle has been won at the cross. Satan stripped of his power. Jesus's kingdom is at hand. The opportunity of new life in the spirit is available. 
that these are spiritual realities that are true. Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities. That's the spiritual realities that are opposed to our soul. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That Jesus dragged Satan and his minions through the streets saying, I have conquered you. The war has won. Then why, Aiden, do we have all these problems? Why is he still at work? St. Augustine again says, a wounded dog is the most dangerous. That the end of all things has not yet come, but Satan has been defeated at the cross. The battle is won. And the reality of the gospel, which literally means good news, is our victory story. And it is the way to life and life abundant. That in Christ, in, in his resurrection, in his, in his crucifixion, that he has defeated sin and he has made a way for new life. That he is making all things new. That his kingdom is subversive and it doesn't always feel like it, but it's true. And Satan wants to lie to us, wants to deceive us, wants to, like a wounded dog, cause as many problems as he can until the day where Jesus ultimately makes all things new. And the reality of the gospel, if you are a follower of Jesus, the reality of our position with God, Ephesians 2 says is this. Just soak in this for a second. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us where in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's a reality. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, don't get caught up on these words, for adoption and sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins because of his grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And if you listen to that, and we read that and our eyes glazed over and it doesn't sound amazing to us, then I think we're believing lies and we're believing this appeal to our flesh that there's got to be something better than these spiritual realities. That the reality of who God has made you to be and what he's called you to do in light of that is what the enemy is after. It's what he was after in the garden. It's the way that sin plays against our soul and it gets normalized in a culture that is opposed to this reality. If he can get you to believe that this reality isn't yours or that there's something better, he is going to take it. Why, why are we having this conversation? Was it because, like, I think we should talk about devil, demons, and the world? This is why we're having this conversation. There, there is a, a study done by a, a company called Barna. You might have heard about that before. Barna is a is a company that does lots of lots of studies, lots of surveys to kind of give us a shape of the kind of the cultural moment spiritually that we're in. And they wrote a fascinating book called Faith for Exiles a couple of years ago, and what they looked at was 18 through 29 year olds who kind of grew up in a church background, and they interviewed them and asked them all kinds of different questions. And, and the results of that were this. And this is just one slice of the pie. This is just one group of people, but I think it's I think it's descriptive of of our culture at large. 22% of this group who grew up in church, 18 through 29, they identified as prodigals or ex-Christians, like didn't go to church anymore, grew up in it, don't believe in it. 22%, so almost a quarter, right? 30% uh, would claim to be nomads or unchurched. It's not, it's not that they're not Christians anymore, but they just are kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. I grew up in it, might go Christmas on Easter, might pray if things are going rough, but just unchurched. I don't really know what I think about all this. 
38% of the people they interviewed were habitual churchgoers, which basically what they define that as habitual churchgoers in their, in their kind of setup of this study, there's basically someone who's like, yeah, I, I go to church from time to time, but none of my behaviors or practices or beliefs really line up with, with what the scriptures say. But I, I go to church sometimes, and that's, that's many of us, 38%. I go to church. I mean, it doesn't have any bearing on my life or beliefs, but I'm going to go. It's good. And this is why we're having this conversation. Because 10%, 10% of this group were resilient disciples. Resilient disciples. And all a resilient disciple is, is someone who attends church monthly and engages with their church more than just attending the service, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm that he was crucified, raised from the dead, conquered sin and death, and express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. So basically basic Christianity, 10%, 10% of that age group. I'm a 31 year old pastor. I don't know, I don't know what I'll be doing for the next 30 years, I, I'm not sure. But I, I think about this, this resiliency, this, this 10%. What does this look like? What does this look like when I'm 56? I think about this because I have, I have two little boys at home. Two little boys at home who, who, were, who were growing up, growing up in some crazy, we've always grown up in a crazy world under the influence of the devil that appeals to our flesh, that gets normalized in a, in a sinful society. Just shows up different ways. I'm raising two little boys that every night when we, when we pray, we end our prayer with our older one, Camden. Pray that Camden, Jesus would know you, would love you, and would follow you all the days of his life. I want their faith to be resilient, and I, I think about this for my, my own faith. I have questions. I have doubts. I have things that I'm not sure of. I have when anxieties get the best of me, I'm like, what do I believe about all these things? And I want for our church, for my children, and for myself, a resilient faith. A resilient faith because the call of Christ isn't simply to pray a prayer, have a mental belief, or simply try to be a Christian, but the call of Christ is to die to our sinful flesh and to follow him and who he has made us to be as he brings his subversive kingdom here on earth, his reality, his way of being here on earth through humility and grace of his people. I want a faith that is resilient. And it is crucial that we as followers of Jesus have a resilient faith. And what Barna would say that this shows up as, the way that this shows up is that we can't be people who just know about Jesus, but we must cultivate an intimate relationship with Jesus. We, we have to be people who are culturally discerning in the midst of our anxious world. We must be people who participate in the family life of God in a world that mistrusts one another, that we must be a people who partner with Jesus in his countercultural mission of the kingdom, that we must have a faith that is resilient. And an important aspect, a necessary aspect of resilience is knowing the things that are opposed to us in the spiritual realms, in the world, and inside of ourselves. If we are not aware of these things, we will not be resilient. We will succumb to our own sin, to the wave of the world, or the lies of Satan. Must be resilient. Ephesians 6, Paul says this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against those people. It's not against that group. It's not against that. But our struggle is against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. 
How, how do we respond to these things? We, we are gonna flush this out for the next couple weeks. Please come back as we take a deep dive in all areas of these things. But Paul says this, therefore, in light of all these things, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm. He says stand three times. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The breastplate of righteousness in place. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That all these things are defensive. A sword, I guess, is 50% offensive, but these things are defensive. Don't confuse defensiveness with passiveness. That to build a resilient faith, we have to put on the things that God says are true about us. His truth and the faith that he's given us, and the righteousness that he has given us, and the peace that he's given us, the message of salvation, the word of God in Christ, that we are to clothe ourselves in these things. As we, as we fight the battle within us, as we battle a lie that comes against us, and as we are called not to be warriors against our world, but ambassadors for a kingdom that is different. So I encourage you to come back. Come back next week as we continue this conversation. You pray with me. Jesus, we are thankful that you are the way, that you are the truth, and that you are the life. And Jesus, I pray that that reality would sink down deep in our souls in a new way, that you might give us eyes to see the spiritual realities at work, that you might give us eyes to see the, the sin that is in our own lives, and that you might help us to see the lies of culture that would want us to believe that we could find life and life abundant in some, some way apart from you, Christ. I pray that we'd be people who are discerning, that Jesus, that we would have faith that is resilient. We're thankful that you're with us in all things. We're thankful that you don't leave us, but Jesus, you showed up as one of us to lead us and to guide us and to give us hope for eternity. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.